Thank you very much for coming to the final lecture in our four lecture series. Um, those of you who have been coming regularly will be fed up uh, hearing me explaining what we're doing, but if, there are any, if there's anyone here for the first time, the idea is that 400 years ago, and we're celebrating that in the International Year of Astronomy, Galileo had to do a lot of work to make his telescopic observations, to make them work, to make his telescope work, to uh, master this new technology, because he was doing a lot of the, me the mechanical work himself. Uh, to learn how to, 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 to see effectively, but also to engage with the, uh, the, the issues of patronage, uh, of publishing, of, uh, of presenting his results in a, in a convincing way, of getting himself noticed and getting himself understood. So there's a lot of back work that had to go on in order to make the uh, astronomy uh, effective, in order to have it count. And um, when we were thinking about having a lecture series for International Year of Astronomy, we thought, well, maybe the uh, stories aren't so very different today. Maybe a lot of that emotion and a lot of that uh, uh, material and, uh, and, and financial uh, uh, story survives in the stories that one, that, that uh, a, a telescope builder or a builder, I suppose, I don't know if we're talking about a telescope in the, in, in the sense we recognize tonight, but the builder of, uh, of an astronomical facility and the managers of an astronomical facility have to deal with uh, uh, in the present day. So we've invited four eminent astronomers from different fields to uh, come along and tell us what it's like. Not so much about the astronomy, though we get some of that too, but to tell us what it's like to uh, go through with a major project in, in the modern era. And tonight we have Professor Alan Watson, so tonight we're, we're, we're moving uh, to uh, so, somewhat more, uh, more exotic uh, regions, both geographically in that we're talking about work done in Argentina, but also physically in that we're moving to different areas of uh, the spectrum. Uh, we've had some, uh, we had one talk about radio, we've had a couple of talks about vis uh, 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 instruments working in, in, in the visible range. Uh, well, I won't say too much, but as you can see, it's about uh, cosmic rays tonight, and the Pierre Bouguer Observatory, is that how you yeah. uh, in, in Argentina. Um, so, uh, Professor Alan Watson uh, is uh, a, a distinguished uh, practitioner in this uh, exotic field of uh, our, our uh, investigation of the, of the heavens. Um, I understand native of Edinburgh, educated in Edinburgh, um, uh, university in Edinburgh, research in Edinburgh, but spent all of his professional life as a working uh, astronomer in Leeds. Uh, but of course, astronomers these days don't stay in Leeds, they fly all over the world. So uh, I gather that uh, astronomy has taken him to lots of uh, uh, interesting places, and exotic places, but we're going to hear most of all tonight, I understand, about Argentina. Uh, thank you very much, Alan. Well, thank you. You're switched on. You're I'm switched you're on, on, yes, and yeah. thank you very much for inviting me and, and for turning out. I had no idea what sort of audience I would get because the kind of astronomy I do is, I'm sure, very unfamiliar to all of you, or most of you. Whereas optical astronomy is something that man has been interested in since the beginning. Radio astronomy has been around since the immediately post-war period. Whereas cosmic rays are fascinating things to study, but I have to say I feel at a slight disadvantage to the three previous speakers in that I am obliged to give you some introductory background to the subject. So what you're going to get is a 
sort of inverted sandwich with a little bit of meat on the outside, what cosmic rays are, why they're interesting, and then a little bit of the results at the end, which I've called the birth of cosmic ray astronomy. And in the middle, there's going to be the sort of things that Jim, I think, wants me to talk about. I'm a little bit worried about the recording, particularly if it's going to be picked up by my colleagues immediately, because some of the things I say will be slightly off the record. Now, the whole subject of cosmic rays started in 1912, and actually, in physics, it's the problem which has been uh, unsolved for the longest, nearly 100 years. And it happened when Victor, maybe we could put this big light off, Okay. Uh, when Victor Hess, uh, an Austrian physicist, took some very simple equipment up in a balloon without oxygen to a height of about five kilometers. And he found that the counting rate of his detectors, first of all, fell and then rose to quite large volumes by about a factor of three. Now, in fact, at the beginning of the 20th century, the really big names in physics, people like J.J. Wilson, C.T.R. Wilson, sorry, J.J. Thompson, C.D.R. Wilson, were fascinated by why there was so much ionization in their detectors, which they couldn't get rid of. And what Hess thought he would do was fly up and uh, see if he could s discover what happened. And he inferred that radiation was coming in from outside. Now, I'd like to show this picture because it says here, Hess at the balloon landing. And you see this picture of somebody who's gone up to five kilometers without altitude, He's landed his balloon in the perfect place with the photographer there and an audience. <laughs> Clearly, he knew he was going to do something uh, that might be interesting. It was tough getting money for cosmic rays, even in 1912, just as it is today. And he wanted to get a bit of PR. I think it's a beautiful photograph. And I think it immediately tells you something about the people that work in this field. They are much more pioneering in a sense. They have to fight with quite sharp elbows against particle physicists and against conventional astronomers to get any money. In a sense, we, we march to a beat of a drum in our own heads rather than to convention. Now, I could spend a whole hour telling you about the history of cosmic rays up until 1938, when my story really starts. But I don't have time to do that, obviously. And I just want to tell you the principal results. They're ubiquitous. They're from outer space. Most importantly, they are charged particles. We now know that they're mainly protons, but they go up to the nuclei of all the stable elements, including the long-lived ones like uranium. The fact that they're charged makes it very difficult to track them back to their origin. The lower energy ones, which of course are the most numerous, they wander around. They make a, a, a diffusive walk. And just like a drunk man coming into the house, you don't know which pub he's come from, you don't know which object the cosmic rays have come from. The energy density is large, it's comparable to that of starlight. And in fact, probably biologically, it has the cosmic rays have some impact on us because they will certainly have changed some of the genetic code from time to time in our bodies. But most interestingly, for the purposes of this talk, most they are the most energetic particles of nature. And in the 30s and up until about uh, the middle of the 50s, they served as the source of the particles used to discover the elementary particles, things like the positron, the muon, the pions, the so-called V particles, the strange particles, were all discovered in cosmic rays. And the energies are really huge. They're very much bigger than the 7 times 10 to the 12 electron volts of the LHC. To put this in a particular way, if you imagine a, a race 
between a light beam of very, very high energetic cosmic rays such I'll discuss, and this 7 times 10 to the 12 electron volt proton star. If you imagine this race over one light year, the light, of course, will win. It will get the gold medal because it's clearly the fastest thing around. But the cosmic rays that I'm going to talk about, with energies of about 10 to the 19, 10 to the 20 electron volts, will only be about the, the hundredth of the diameter of human hair behind the light. Whereas these miserable, slow, but expensive things uh, will be three times the distance from the Earth to the Moon behind the light. So we're talking about very, very energetic particles. Now, the low energy particles can be studied using instruments taken up in balloons, rather by tested, but of course with much more sophistication, or by putting instrumentation on satellites or on the International Space Station. But the particles that I'm going to talk about, the highest energy cosmic rays, are very, very rare. And we can only study them by making use of a phenomenon called extensive air showers, which was discovered by chance by Pierre Auger in 1938. And he did this because of a technical development. And I think it's always important to understand that technical developments are things that drive science. In particular, at that time, it was interesting to know if you had two counters, and these circles are supposed to represent Geiger counters, if you had two counters observing perhaps a radioactive source, did radiation from this source go through the counters at the same time, or was it unassociated? And you use a device called the coincidence unit to measure the signals from these counters, and when they come in coincidence, then you get a signal out. Now, the whole thing is governed by what's called the resolving time, tau. And in 1938, the resolving time of electronic circuits was about 10 milliseconds. And Auger had one of his students who was very talented at electronics, Roland Mars, reduce this to something like 100 mi 10 microseconds. And to test that you've got that precision, you put two counters some distance apart, a couple of meters, and you measure what's called the chance rate. If you know the rate N1, N2 there, then the chance rate is given by this. And what they discovered was the chance rate was way above anything that was reasonable, given the improvements that Mars was sure he'd made. And eventually, they put the detectors, just simple Geiger counters, 300 meters apart. And at that time, in the late 1930s, people were beginning to understand quantum electrodynamics, and they understood how cascades could develop. And Auger claimed that his counters, 300 meters apart, were being hit by huge coincident arrivals of particles. Rangère in French, which we now call extensive air showers, and that's what I'll really be talking about. The most remarkable thing about this, I think, is that in this simple, very, very simple experiment, he moved the known energy scale by a factor of a million. And that's the only time that has happened. And it was a dramatic change made because of a technical innovation, namely improvement of this resolving time. Now to try and give you some feel for these showers, I'm going to show, oh that's Pierre Auger, I was fortunate to meet him and I have a letter from him, he, this was at a conference in 1981. He's obviously uh, quite elderly then, I think he was in his early 90s when he died. He was very important in the rebuilding of science in general, but physics in particular, after the Second World War. 
He was one of the people who pushed for UNESCO, and I noticed in Jim's exhibition that I looked at this afternoon that it was UNESCO that designated this year as the year of astronomy. He also had a huge impact in the construction of CERN. Basically, he, he thought this was a way to prevent people fighting one another. Quite a remarkable man. Now, it's never easy to be convinced by just electronics. And Auger, I discovered very recently on his way to the States, was in Manchester, where J.G. Wilson, who was my boss in Leeds for some time, and CBA Lovell, of course, at the Lovell Telescope, were working under Blackhead. And Lovell wrote to me recently, following an inquiry, and told me that they had been probably directed through Blackhead by Auger to put two cloud chambers side by side. And here you can see the parallel tracks in these chambers, and the two chambers were a few meters apart. And this confirmed in a beautifully visual way that indeed there were these particles arriving simultaneously in different places. And you could also see that you could measure the direction from these particles, if you have serious plumb line. And of course, if you were able to time the arrival, you could measure the direction from the times, and that's what's done nowadays. Now, I love this picture. It was taken in 49 by an American physicist. This is another cloud chamber picture. And you see here there are a lot of lead plates across the chamber. They're 1.3 centimeters thick. And here a very high energy cosmic ray, well, high energy by the standards of the time, probably about 10 to the 10 electron volts, has come in, gone through the lead. You can work out that that means it's a proton. It's interacted in there. And you see lots and lots of particles being developed. And you see the shard grows and dies. Now you can imagine little nano detectors on one of these plates. By measuring the time of the arrival of the particles, again, you can get the direction. Also, you can get the number of the particles. And what you have to try and do is get the energy and the mass from those measurements as well, of course, the direction. But the point I want to stress is that certainly for the purposes of, of tonight's talk, the shards that I'm going to talk about, which take place in the air rather than here in the lead, we only use the gas in between to visualize the shard, it's the same phenomenon. But instead of the footprint of the shard being a few tens of square centimeters, as it is here, the shards that I'm going to talk about have footprints of 20, 30 square kilometers. So they're covered in vast areas of the land. And this, of course, allows you to detect them, because essentially you dot as much area of land as you can persuade someone to loan you with as much equipment as you can afford to buy, and then you can study particles in that way. Now, the early motivation for studying these particles of higher and higher energy was that it was thought that eventually you would see what we call anisotropies. That's to say, you would see points in the sky where more than the average number of cosmic rays came from. And in fact, it's been an incredibly frustrating time since the discovery of cosmic rays that we still don't know where they come from. And that's because of the magnetic field in the way and because, as I said earlier, they're charged. But the belief has always been that if you went to a high enough energy where the particles are very, very rare, you would see anisotropies in the sky. When I started in this business, I went to Leeds in 1964 and was lucky enough to be involved in building an experiment in a place called Hubble Park. There were only activities going on in four different places. Mokina Ranch in the US, uh, at, uh, near Sydney, 
Sydney University giant Ayrshire recorder, in Australia, Yakutsk in Siberia. We were a pretty small select group. We got on pretty well because the pace of research meant it wasn't too competitive. It takes a long time to build these equipment, the pieces of equipment. But it was, a, it, was a, it was a fun time, but we weren't really connected to the rest of astrophysics at that stage. One of the pioneers, and man I was very friendly with for nearly 30 years, he died just a few years ago, John Lindsley, who's shown here, worked at a place called Volcano Ranch in New Mexico. You could see the volcanoes in the background. And this is one of his very simple detectors. It's covered with a plastic bag underneath that straw to keep the temperature fluctuations down. And again, some simple shielding to keep the sun off. In New Mexico, it gets to 100 Fahrenheit in, in the, the summer. This is to keep the cattle out. And you can't see it, but John normally wore um, long boots because of the rattlesnakes. And he first of all poke that. I worked with John in New Mexico for about six months in 1980, and we were very, very close friends, and our families were close friends. I still keep in touch with his son. Now, John, in later life, uh, we see him here, rather more dramatic, but he was the first person to co record a cosmic ray of really high energy, 10 to the 20 electron volts. Now, that's roughly equivalent to a tennis ball moving at 100 kilometers per hour. Three times that is as fast as and here you see John's detectors, like the one I showed in the previous picture, spread out about 850 meters between them. So this is covering about eight square kilometers. And you see the numbers go from 1,400 here out to one here. And from this information, he was able to deduce the primary energy. Now, unlike starlight or radio waves, which essentially come to us from the farthest depths of space, and one of the motivations for building bigger and bigger optical or radio telescopes is to see deeper into the universe. The very highest energy cosmic rays actually come from rather nearby. They come from less than 100 megaparsecs or within 300 million light years. And we expect that the number of events which falls anyway as a function of energy will drop off extremely rapidly above an energy of 5 times 10 to the 90 electron volts. And if we can study cosmic rays above this energy, we will be able to see nearby sources because of a marvelous effect, which is known as the Grison, Zetseppin, Kuzmin effect, which was recognized in 1966, just after the discovery of the microwave background radiation in 1965. Now, a proton of 10 to the 20 electron volts traveling through the microwave background radiation sees these miserably low energy microwave photons, energies of a few times 10 to the minus 4 electron volts. Because of the relativistic Doppler effect, it sees the photon energies boosting. And it excites what's called the delta plus resonance, which is a well-known particle from accelerated physics. And that decays, taking energy away from the, the proton. And this means that the particles can't travel very far. And if you see in your detector a particle of an energy above about 5 tenths of the 19 electron volts, then you're pretty sure that it's come from quite nearby. And essentially what nature has provided is a beautiful shield to prevent us being swamped by all the cosmic rays coming from large distances. There's only one snag. Events of 10 to the 20 electron volts are very rare. 
was about one per, per square kilometer per century. But it's when I started the work that I'm going to describe, the construction of the Pierogi Observatory, we thought that was the figure. We actually think it's more. And I spent perhaps 20, 25 years of my life establishing that this was the figure, more or less. So that brings me to how we detect these things. And some of the older people here will perhaps remember the Apollo 13 disaster, which was in 1970, when there was an explosion on the Apollo spacecraft as it was going around the moon. And the astronauts had to come back in the dark, essentially. And they began to see flashes of light in their eyes and were very, very worried. It's not in the film. Tom Hanks didn't see any flashes of light. But as the particles go through the liquid in your eyeball, you get a flash of light. This is called Chernikov radiation. It happens whenever a particle moves through a medium with a velocity higher than the velocity of light in that medium. So you can make a detector very simply by having a big tank of water and looking at the water with a photomultiplier. The photomultiplier detects light and converts it into an electrical signal. And here you see a particle moving through the water and light is coming out and is reflected around and some of it ends up in the photomultiplier. And at the instrument at Howard Park that I worked on for a long time, started working on when I went to Leeds in 64, we had something like 200 tanks, each with 2.7 tons of water. And they were spread over 12 square kilometers, which was an enormously large area at the time. It took a lot of time building it, getting around. I don't want to go into details, but this just shows you the kind of event that you would get. This was an event that we think now is about 8 times 10 to the 19 electron volts, well above the so-called GZK cutoff, this 5 10 to the 19 figure, so it's probably come from nearby. Uh, this time, at that time, this part of the, uh, the array was more densely packed, and you can see almost by symmetry that you can find out where the central region is, and you can find the direction. And then by measuring the time of arrival of the different detectors, you can work out the direction, typically to about two degrees. So I'm not talking about milliard seconds or anything like that, you're hearing about the other lecture. This is pretty crude astronomy. We don't even have the resolution of the moon. There are some lower energy, lower energy experiments can do that. It was a fantastically fun time, and I could spend, again, another hour telling you about this. Perhaps the most important result was taken at the end of Project Party, 31st of July 1987, when we opened one of these tanks. Now this water, this particular tank, had been there for 25 years. It was completely drinkable. It was a little flat, and one of my research students who'd had the wisdom to go into computing had actually bought a, to the party a bottle of 25-year-old Macallan, which was a lot more tasty, and I said I didn't put any of the water into that. But it was very, very important because, as you'll see, in the detector in Argentina, we use the same technology. We use these water Chernikov detectors. And in fact, one of the first things I did when we got involved in this project was to take uh, two big Coca-Cola bottles full of this water to Argentina for testing. I don't think you'd be able to do that now because we're probably taking liquids on planes. <laughs> now, the other way of detecting ultra-high-energy cosmic rays is to make use of the same physics as goes on in the aurora. This is a, a nice aurora, and of course we see it in the visible, but this is actually the spectrum measured in units of nanometers. The visible is out here, but if you can pick up the radiation in this region, you can cut down a lot of the effects of starlight, 
It's difficult to do because it's trying to see a, an event of 310 to the 18 electron volts at a distance of 15 kilometers. It's like trying to detect a 5 watt light bulb moving at the velocity of light. But if you can do that and see events 15 kilometers away, then you have the possibility of having a huge area just from observations at a single point. And that's known as the fluorescence technique. And it's a little bit more like a telescope. Except it doesn't move, but not all telescope mirrors move. Here are the mirrors, and there's a camera here, a rather crude camera, as you'll see later on, unlike the CCD cameras, which are now used in optical astronomy. So those are the two techniques that I'm going to talk about, the Water-Chernkov technique and the fluorescence technique. And this is the kind of data that you can get from the fluorescence technique. Here's the air shard, sorry, here's the shard that I showed you developing in the lead, and you see the number of particles rising and falling. This is the same thing measured with the fluorescence technique. And in fact, we find the energy by finding the area under this curve. It's about three times 10 to the 20 electron volts. Absolutely enormous. It's still the biggest energy ever reported. In fact, one has to begin to wonder if it's maybe incorrect for some reason. But notice that at the point here of maximum, there's something like 2 times 10 to the 11 particles in, in the shower. A colossal number of particles. Well, the OGA project really had its genesis, I suppose, in 1990 when I gave a review talk. And I'd been working at that time at the South Pole. I covered around how energy cosmic rays, but that's another story. And I ended the talk, which was slightly depressing, in that I hadn't really noticed much change in the time I'd been away. And I pointed out that the problem's lack of exposure. It's been clear for many years that we need to build a thousand square kilometers. But progress has been slow. And then I said the experimental problems are challenging and subtle, but certainly soluble. And all that is needed is dedication, money, and patience. And the next part of the talk is going to describe uh, those problems. At this point, enter the Nobel Prize winner. Uh, a man called Jim Cronin, uh, I think uh, probably related to A.J. Cronin, the W actually is Watson, was, his cousin told me when I met her, one of the nasty Watsons who were sent to Northern Ireland to, <laughs> to sort out the Catholics. Uh, I've been friendly with him for a number of years, and he'd been started working on cosmic rays, and I sent him a write-up of my talk, and when we met in Dublin in August 1991, the first words, didn't even say hello, he said, you're not really ambitious enough, you must go 5,000 square kilometers. Now the area we had at the part was 12 square kilometers, so this was a big jump. But he'd come from particle physics. He won his Nobel Prize for the discovery of CP violation, which is very important in explaining why there are different amounts of matter and antimatter in the universe. And this was the starting point. The early name was ghastly. It was P5000 because we thought of 5,000 square kilometers. This is a sort of before and after picture. It was taken at Fermilab in 1995 at the end of the design study. And uh, there's another picture later on, and you'll see how much I've aged. Now, as it happened, Jim had sabbatical leave in Leeds in the autumn of 1991. And his idea had been to work on some of his own data in a different environment because he had a, a detector looking at small uh, showers, low energy cosmic about one square kilometer. And it actually been very worried as to when they would come, because just before the meeting in Dublin, their instrument had been struck by lightning and basically just vaporized. <laughs> uh, they now, in fact, well, it's finished now, but they had the largest lightning conductor ever, ever put over it. 
And we spent most of the time in Leeds discussing how we might build something really enormous. And we did some test measurements at Havre Park. The detectors, some detectors were still there. We developed very important contacts with people in our electronics and electrical engineering department, uh, which was important for the, the timing and for the communications, as I'll try to explain. It was a really, really fruitful four months. And during that time, he was, uh, he went over to, to Paris, because he was going to Paris uh, just after Christmas for a few months. He's a Francophile, speaks excellent French. And he more or less told them that unless they organized a meeting to discuss this project, he wasn't going to come. He couldn't do that without Francis. Who would care if I said that? But he organized this meeting, Cosmic Rays, above 10 to the 19 EV. It was in 1992. Major meeting, about 200 physicists attended. And it was followed by other workshops. Now, after the meeting, there were a number of things that struck me. First of all, uh, Jim had decided we would get some young French physicists to listen to the talks and then report. And I remember overhearing one of them say to another, just because Auger is French, we don't need to get into this kind of physics. <laughs> At this time, it wasn't called Auger, but uh, it may have helped. The German situation was very complicated. They had a very, very nice experiment at lower energies in Karlsruhe, but the boss of the group would not allow any of his team to work on this project. Some who had joint appointments came in different ways. I really had wanted to get the Italians in. I had good friends in Palermo and Naples, but they were very reluctant to get involved under Jim Cohen's leadership because John Lindsley, another very, very powerful personality that I, I hope I described, had different ideas. And furthermore, the two guys didn't get on. Both Americans, but they couldn't be more different. John had been arrested for growing marijuana on the air shadow ray. And he had recently gone apart and shot before he died, so his son told me from the governor of New Mexico. Uh, Jim, uh, and he was educated in Minnesota, worked most of his life in New Mexico, never had a property faculty, proper faculty position, kept the family together by selling eggs and eight rabbits and this kind of thing. Jim, uh, not quite Ivy League, was educated in Chicago, did his Nobel Prize work at Princeton, and possibly has had a ticket for a parking offense. You know. <laughs> really, you couldn't imagine what two more different characters were. But I'm lying awake at night, and I try to think about who were the more, was the most focused. But they were both the most incredibly focused and the smartest people I've been in. Another problem is that a competition developed between the two techniques, the fluorescence technique and the, water, uh, and the array technique. And in fact, for the first 18 months, Jim and I were convinced that we could do this just using particle detectors. And we both admit now it was our worst piece of misjudgment throughout the whole enterprise. And it changed after the workshop in Tokyo. I, part of it was we didn't know how to do the fluorescence. This is what this cartoon is saying. It's time to face reality, my friends. You should keep the ground detectors. But the other was that we both had terrible personal experiences with the people at the University of Utah who were the sole experts. And we just didn't want to work with these people. And it looks as if it would be difficult to avoid them. Well, we finessed that. Now, I don't have time to go into that. Now, the major problems to be overcome, which you could say are true in most projects, but much more true in this case, lack of money to do anything. Fight for recognition that it was worth doing anything in the first place. The site service had to be done. 5,000 square kilometers, which is what we were thinking of at the beginning, is roughly the area inside the M25, or the size of Lancashire, or 
uh, Rhode Island is big. And we reckon we'd need about $100 million to do this. Now, the reality is that there are all these big established groups. You heard how tough it is at Johnny Bank and all that kind of stuff. But if you're in, if you try to create a new area, you've got to get your money from the people who have the money already. And that's, that's hard. How do you get the project assessed? And then there was a huge vulnerability. There was no hard theoretical number saying how many, how big we had to make the whole thing. And the hardest question that Jim and I ever had to ask at meetings was, why do you want to make it so big? Why don't you make it half the size, half the money? You can see how the argument goes. Now we tried CERN at that time, Chris Lawrence Smith, who was of course at Oxford, was a director general, and Don Perkins, who was also at Oxford, and he's still before he retired, he drew our attention, Don drew our attention to the CERN Charter. And in there it says that we should include work in the field of cosmic rays, work in the field of cosmic rays, and not from Chris Lawrence's door. And said, yes, yeah, interesting project, and the one full-time people at CERN comes, we can't do it. It's just the wrong time we're starting to ramp up to the LFC. So no joy there, although we do actually use them as a bank for other reasons. So we had to do something, and we got small amounts of money for travel and limited R&D from different labs. In Leeds, we sold the lead that we'd used on the detectors at Hazard Park and the aluminium lids, and this gave us you know, a few tens of thousands of pounds. We were really at that level. But I had a breakthrough. I met somebody in the States who was in UNESCO, and it just shows how naive I am. I was talking to him about the project, and I said, would you be able to give uh, Jim Cronin an interview? Not in this guy's but he wasn't heading on in UNESCO. But he got Jimmy to see the Director General. Now, at this time, still, the US are not members of UNESCO. But Jim managed to charm the DG out of sufficient money for travel and visits by scientists from developing countries through the design study for three years. And then Jim knew private donors. I often say that Jim was able to get through doors that I would not be able to knock on. And two of the really important people were Bob Galvin, the son of the founder of Motorola, a delightful man now in his 80s, fascinated by the Scottish Enlightenment. Typical Jim is, oh yes, I'm taking to see Bob Galvin when you come over to the States. Uh, he's very interested in the Scottish Enlightenment. So I had a week to learn about the Scottish Enlightenment, because not only was he interested, he had published his own book on the Scottish Enlightenment. Didn't come up in the conversation. And then David Granger, who is a benefactor from Chicago, so, and I met both of these guys, it was really interesting. We also had a fascinating three-week trip through the Far East, trying to get people involved. We were unsuccessful with the Japanese, the South Koreans, and people in Hong Kong, which at that time wasn't joined with China. The Chinese were involved for a few years, but really getting from China to Argentina is a tough job. In Vietnam, we met, met the Vice President of the Communist Party, uh, who was a theoretical physicist. And remember meeting Jim in Dubna, just after the discovery of CP violation in 1964. And we met in this amazing audience chamber, which we saw on TV the following night, Vera Gandhi meeting the president. And I just listened to these, but it seemed old men to me then, talking about the past. Unfortunately, I have no photograph to show you because my camera was st stolen the way back in Australia. Uh, Australia and Vietnam are involved. The Vietnamese are, are associate, is an associate country supported by the French, but it's really helping 
their fundamental physics in Vietnam. And that came out in the sense out of UNESCO. Perhaps the important thing that came out of the trip was the naming of the project. I was really keen to get John Winsley in this crazy marijuana smoking American. And I knew he was a tremendous admirer of Auger. In fact, in 1980, when I was working with him in Albuquerque, uh, Auger wrote to him and told him he'd nominate him for the Nobel Prize. So I came up with this awful acronym, a unique, giant, extensive air shower recorder. And Jim, I remember, we were playing somewhere, going somewhere, he fucked the armrests. I hate people's names being used uh, in this way, and we called it Auger. So that was how the name came, certainly better than P5000. Then we had to do a design study. And here is a transcript from some words that I got from the project manager, a marvelous guy called Paul Manch at Fermiland. And John Peoples, who was then the director, was persuaded by Jim that we could have a design study there for six months. And he made available nice office space, computing power, and so on. It was fantastic. And for six months, People came and went, some people stayed most of the time. Um, it really was a, a remarkable time. And John still doesn't like being reminded of this because he had a lot of hostility because the Slow and Digital Sky Survey, which is a very, very important tool in astronomy, was in great trouble and was taking a lot of resource, which, of course, the particle physicists thought should go to particle physics. However, the design study took place from January to July 1995. Now, of course, working with a Nobel Prize winner who by this time had decided he was going to retire so he could spend full time on the project, not that Jim did all that much teaching, and I never saw him do any administration, he expected he'd be able to drop everything and rush over to the States. So I made a career move. I decided I would become a pro vice chancellor half time for three years. The thing being that this puts you in control of your diary. There's no undergraduate teaching you can keep the vice chancellor at bay, you can say, okay, I'm blocking out the next two weeks because I'm going to a meeting somewhere. And that worked marvelously and made me realize I had no wishes to be a vice chancellor. <laughs> and just as off the record, being a vice chancellor, your first attribute is you have to be nice to people that you can't stand. I thought I'd be nice to my friends. <laughs> at the beginning, there were studies of various surface detector designs. It was obvious what we would use for fluorescence, there was only one to use. Uh, I would go through these, but the motto for the first three months was let a thousand flowers bloom. And then we made a cut, and we chose a hybrid approach with water Chernikov counters for the current array of fluorescence detectors. And uh, I had to stand very far back from that, because I knew water was the best, but um, you have to kind of learn how to handle it and make them think it was his idea Anyway, we backed that with very extensive Monte Carlo calculations. We wanted to have two sites to give all sky coverage. And we had in our minds that $100 million would be about the top price that we could expect to get from all the countries that we were now building into collaboration. And that meant descoping to 3,000 square kilometers, one in each hemisphere. We produced a design study, uh, and the document was ready in October. So what we're really doing is we're putting around as many water Chernikov detectors as we can, looking at the shower with the water Chernikov detectors, and then in dark, clear nights, we're looking at the fluorescence. And this we call the hybrid technique. This just shows you what's going on. Here you see the green, these are the particles coming down, the blue's the light, and the particles 
are going to hit the detectors first because the light is traveling slower than light in a vacuum and then it reaches the fluorescence detectors and you can see the, the signals building up. So that's what we're trying to do. And of course the problem is, where do you do it? We came from the design study with three designs, a so-called Cyclops design where there was one eye in the middle of a hexagon, the MasterCard where there were two eyes in the middle of a rectangle, the Superman like this. But the problem is nature doesn't actually provide you land masses, land areas of 3,000 square kilometers with convenient hills. So two young guys were sent on a trip to Australia, South Africa, and Argentina to look for possible sites. These are the specifications. Basically, that's the latitude range. That was the area we wanted, 3,500 square kilometers. And we wanted it about a kilometer above sea level nice and clear so that we could use the fluorescence and suitable infrastructure with national scientists and report uh, for support, access to radio licenses and so on. So Ken Games from Chicago and Antoine Matesse Salvon from Paris did this and we selected Argentina at a site meeting in UNESCO. We made UNESCO, uh, made use of our UNESCO connections on a number of occasions. The Argentinian situation is interesting because there's actually no history of cosmic ray work in Argentina. But in January 1965, 1995, Alberto Echigoshi, who actually did his PhD at Oxford in, was in nuclear physics, was sitting by chance next to Jim Cronin at a meeting of the Argentinian Physical Society. He was interested in the project. Somehow or other, he had access to Carl's Men, who at that time was the president. And Men was coming towards the end of his two five-year terms. And of course, like most of these people, didn't want to give up. And he had this somewhat naive idea that he was photographed often enough with a Nobel Prize winner the country would see what a great guy he was and therefore would change the constitution. Well that, fortunately for Argentina, didn't happen. The other two countries, South Africa and Australia, had a long tradition of cosmic rays but there were problems in Australia that the site actually was at sea level, difficulties with Aboriginal land rights and no money. We had a beautiful letter from Nelson Mandela uh, in 1995, saying, I am putting my full weight behind the siting of the project in South Africa. It's clear to me that it will provide an exciting new focus for our young potential scientists. Didn't see anything about money. He'd only been out of prison for five years. And who, who knew what would happen in South Africa? Could have gone amazing far we had. So we actually voted unanimously uh, for Argentina. And that was good because we didn't get off to an acrimonious start. Then we had the problem, how do you assess the project? Now if you want to do something in astronomy or particle physics, you go along to your local lab, CERN or Fermilab, space science, you go to the European Space Agency, there are infrastructures, there are people who know what's going on. So we had the good idea, we thought, of creating our own review committee. So we got the most powerful people we thought who would be sensible, headed by a director of Max Planck Institute, who was a card-carrying cosmic ray physicist, an Indian with the same uh, stature, a guy who was very expert in telecommunications, Ron Eckers, who you may have heard of from Phil Diamond in terms of the square kilometre array, he's the guy driving that, and then Jack Steinberger, who already had a Nobel Prize in particle physics, and Kushiba, who subsequently won one. And they grilled us for the day. It was awful. And it was even worse for me because at lunchtime in the UNESCO canteen, I got detached from my OG friends and ended up at a table with Steinberger 
and Koshiba, and it was lifetimes of a brain built by these two great minds. However, we got a really good report that was helpful to the ag agencies, except one which I won't mention. Of course, it's a favourable report. You chose the committee, which I think was one of the most insulting things I I've ever heard said. Getting funding was difficult. I could tell many stories about that. We eventually got funding to build one observatory and go south. At that time, we would have collaboration meetings about a couple of times a year. Each country was vying for the best place to offer. And we actually were in Itacarusa, like the delightful island off Brazil, quite near Rio. And the discussion was, should we follow what Sage Nap is saying? Should we really compromise and build one detector and then sometime in the future build a second? Everybody in the collaboration except Jim was in favor of taking the money and going. He was in the minority of one. But we eventually talked him around with lots of Carcarinians. And then after the US funding came through, of course, there's going to be no project unless the US funding funded Cronin. The rest of the money came in fairly quickly. I got uh, two million pounds over five years, which given the size of the community in the UK was pretty good to deliver the communications. I have to say the initial reactions from the UK astronomers were terrible. I remember I was on the astronomy board, I think it was called the committee at the time, and I presented the design report, and the chair of the committee said, nice project, but you're not going to fund it. So it wasn't very encouraging. So eventually we had enough together to have a groundbreaking ceremony. These are the countries that are involved. Portugal, Spain, and the Netherlands joined later. Vietnam and Bolivia are associate countries, which means they don't put in any money but uh, the scientists have the chance to benefit from the project. And there's a nice picture of uh, Jim uh, with the daughter of Pierre Roger, delightful lady, and by one of these crazy chances that happened, I happened to sit beside her on the Air France plane down to Buenos Aires, and all the way down she regaled me with tales about what it had been like with the, all the French physicists used to go on holiday with their families in the period before the war. Babies were born nine months later and lots of arguments about the fathers. <laughs> uh, that's the groundbreaking ceremony, and you may not be able to see, but Menem's name is there. He didn't actually show up, and he, he left shortly afterwards. Well, this is what we now have. Uh, something like 1,660 detectors spread over an area roughly the size of inside the M25, and I'm going to give you a quick run-through because I'm running out of time. What's there? Now, this is the campus building. And it's fantastic. When some of my cousin Ray colleagues saw it, they couldn't believe it was for us. But on one of our trips, we went to Australia, we visited one of the astronomy labs. I'm afraid I can't remember the one. It's one that caught fire in bushfires some years ago. And Jim was just staggered at the opulence that the astronomers had. And of course, that goes back to longitude and so on. So he was determined that we would live well. And he tried to get uh, David Ranger, one of the people who supported us, private donor, to give more money. But Granger said, well, look, I know the shares have been doing very well. Why can't you get money from the university? And of course, universities don't like endowments being controlled by the endower. So Jim concocted a letter and arranged for it to be on the desk of the new president the day that he arrived. And the following day, he burst through the door. And he came out with a million dollars. And we built this and also have money for our visitor center. We have a big outreach program. We get something like 10,000 visitors a year. And this is a very remote place. Now, this is one of the tanks that we pull the water in. The water's held in a big plastic bag. And here it's being inflated. A leak has been found there. And there are little windows and photomultipliers look at the water. So it's a little bit like Havre Park, but uh, 
a bit more sophisticated. This is the tank out in the field. It's run from solar power. It's 12 tons of water, 10 square meters, 1.2 meters deep, which is exactly the same as the Hubbard Park tanks by some amazing coincidence. 10 watts of power, and the electronics is under there. There's a battery box there, and there's a com communications antenna. We, excuse me, we used GPS to measure the arrival time. We could not do this without GPS. In fact, it was obvious to do, use GPS. GPS. I used to trail up the hill to electronic engineering about every three years. How much is a GPS receiver multiplied by a thousand and go down ready to crest? Now, of course, they're very, very cheap. And then there's the communications. All the tanks have names. Here you see some of them going out to the field. They just happens to have my name on it. And they went out in, in force. And then they have to be deployed. And not all as difficult as this, but this demonstrates the incredible determination of the team in Argentina in getting these detectors into position. The water comes in a sterilized vehicle. In this case, there's quite some piping to get it into the tank. The last tank was deployed in June 2008. The design says you can only have three people on the top of the tank at a time. There are more there. It was a very, very happy time. And uh, on the way, we had a lot of setbacks. A really big problem, and this is a message if you're thinking of doing uh, something like this, is there's a lack of upfront money. There were lots and lots of promises. I don't think it's appropriate since this is being taped to see where the promises broke down. But it meant that we, money came in dribs and drags. Therefore, we could only order items in small quantities. And this can lead to problems with obsolescence. In fact, the GPS engines that we were using, made by Motorola, we knew were going to become obsolete. So Jim went to Bob Gallagher and explained the problem, and he bought a thousand GPS receivers out of his own pocket. Unlike these people that are in the Forbes top 100, he doesn't have his own foundation. And apparently, he didn't get them at a very good price. But it worked fantastically well. And the real disaster was the Argentinian financial crisis in early 2002. Basically what had happened is that Menem had sold off all the family silver, he sold the airlines, he sold the, the telecommunication system, and the peso dollar had moved from parity to four to one. Now, when we told Argentinians that Menem had promised us $11 million, they obviously had but in fact, it always promised us 11 million pesos. And to be perfectly fair to the Argentinians, we got 11 million pesos. It just that was quite a shortfall in a $50 million project. Most countries put in some more. The UK put in proportionally what we put in already. Some new countries joined up. But then there were major problems with new landowners because lots of people came in from outside of Argentina. The peso incredibly weak and bought up vast tracts of land. And in this country, my guess, well, my belief is that if you, well, I know from our experiences at Harvard Park, that if the land changed hands, you're expected to honor the agreements. But this didn't happen in Argentina. Now, if this works, I'm going to try and show you the way in which the array developed. Um, the different colors, yellow, that's the date at the top, yellow corresponds to uh, a tank being in position. Orange means it's been filled with water, and blue it means it's actually up and running. And it starts at 2002, and you've got 32 tanks up and running. This was a prototype instrument that we had to demonstrate to the agencies that we could actually, we had to show we could do it. It's what we call the engineering array. So I'm going to set this running and stop it from time to time. 
Um, just at the start of the financial crisis is where, when this, this whole picture starts. So there we are, a year in, and we've got, managed to get 37 tanks into position. And we want to get out over 1,600. So if you multiply that, it's a pretty depressing picture. And we've only got 34 of them filled with water, and we've got no electronics in. One country was a bit late with the electronics. We've begun to get the fluorescence detectors going. Now, as it advances, you'll see little circles, white circles appear here, here, and here. Those are the buildings, which are fairly substantial for the fluorescence detectors. This means we've got the mirror in position. This means we've got the whole thing working. So I'll not uh, stop it too long. Um, So end of 2003, we've still only got 121 tanks, so we're not even a tenth of the way there. So you begin to think, am I ever going to see the end of this? Well, we do, but there were other setbacks, and I'll illustrate that. Los Morales came in here, Coeco's going. You see the tanks, the, the way they were deployed for various reasons, I won't go into the details. You see uh, an area here that's obviously difficult to populate for some reason, and similarly up here, this is what we call the, called the Felix Sat problem, where the landowner Felix was keen to have us on the land, but Sat, the person who rented the land, didn't want us there. That could happen in the UK. Most of the land up here was owned by an Italian who was reading, uh, reading, reading alpaca goats. And when uh, the coast spokesperson, Johnny Mackey, who's an Italian, went to see him, uh, they were met at the gate with people with Kalashnikov rifles and a copy of Mein Kampf on the table. They managed to talk him round. And, uh, well, I'll just have to let this run. This was late getting going, but eventually, when we got permission to get onto this guy's land, we filled very, very quickly. And finally, legal pressure was put on by the government of Mendoza to allow us onto to Sat's land. There are one or two holes still, that's just because the access is very, very difficult. Now this is what it looks like. This is a much nicer place to fill the tanks. This is the communications signal. And this is one of the fluorescence detectors. The communications were developed in Leeds. I haven't time to go into the details, but basically the signals from the tanks are sent over a microwave link to a computer, which searches for coincidences in space and time, the time from the GPS, because it knows where the detectors are. And if we see such a thing, then we send the signal back. This is a picture of one of the heroes of the project, Paul Clark, who is bolting into position one of the detectors. He was uh, one of my colleagues from Leeds. He's now left the university and he's set up the company, director, he's the director of comms design, his first uh, contract is with Scott Rail. If you use single track rail lines in the Highlands in the future, they're safe and reliable because of Pierre Auger. Now, it's not nice growing old, but one of the good things was that Paul decreed that I was really too old to learn, go through the training, you need to work on these masts, which are about uh, 50 meters high. But just to show you, I did work on masts in the past. This is going up the mast at Hagrid Park. The interesting thing here, sociologically, is that I was wearing a tie on the field station <laughs> experiment. Now I feel I can turn up in Oxford without a tie. This is the fluorescence detector. It's a mirror, light comes through uh, a filter, here's the filter, and it falls on a camera. This is a camera with 440 pixels. It's very different from the CCD cameras in astronomy. This is what the reconstructed events look like. This is the track of the shower going through the camera. And here is the night sky background. 
what the astronomers love. And here you see the signal rising and falling, and that's the rise and fall in the shower, as I uh, tried to explain from the original cloud chamber picture. This is a large event where the footprint is something like 25 kilometers. This is in, in kilometers. So you see the 18 of the water Cherkov detectors have been struck. The size of the signal is proportional to the log of the area, so the biggest signals are in here. These are the edges here, maybe just chance, uh, particles going through, it may be part of this. But of course, these big signals are the ones that we use to reconstruct the event. Okay, a result. This is the number of particles as a function of energy. This is the energy scale at the top. And if you remember the discussion at the beginning, the Earth is shielded from any high-energy cosmic ray sources that are more than 100 megaparsecs away, 300 million light years. And because of that, you expect to see a fall in the number of events. And that's what we seem to see. The sad thing is that at an energy of about 210 to the 20 electron volts, which is the highest energy event we've seen so far, we've only seen one event. We're actually expecting to see many, many more than that. And the depressing news is having spent so much time on this project is that we didn't build it big enough. I said it earlier on, but one of the drawbacks in this field is that there's really little theory to rely on. There's back of the envelope hand-waving phenomenology. But it's not like in particle physics where they can tell you, the theoreticians can tell you, if you collide two 70 beams together, you might expect to see the Higgs. Now, they may not see the Higgs, but at least there's a pretty sound theory basically. So we see this falling off, and then, of course, you worry, well, is this just nature being cruel? Are the sources running out of ability to accelerate particles to high energies? Then you come in with the test. Can you see any anisotropy? Can you see any preferred directions in the sky? Now, there does not have to be preferred directions on the sky because there may be many sources. And in which case, with the number of events we have, I mean, this is, we get actually above an energy, I'm going to be talking about an energy just here, about 6, 10 to the 19. We get about two events per month. I, I, we have a quick look at data analysis that comes on my computer every morning. And I look. I'm no longer interested in charge produced by primaries of 10 to the 19 EV, which in the days of Hapa Park you know, almost caused a party because they were so rare. These are really boring. We've got thousands of these things now. I'm just interested in the ones up here. They come about two a month. So that's what we're trying to do our physics on, our astronomy on. Are these directions anisotropic? Well, I won't go into the complicated story of how we came to believe that we are, but this is a paper that was published in Science in November 2007. There will be an update of these uh, results uh, in the summer of this year. It's a complicated plot. I, I don't have a simple one, so you just have to live with it. But this is the galactic plane here, and the black open circles are the cosmic rays that we have detected with energies above, sorry, I should have changed that. Uh, five, let's say 6 times 10 to the 19 EV. These are, these are very, very energetic particles, which we believe must have come from nearby. The fading of the blue here represents the sensitivity of our detector. This is the supergalactic plane. 
which is where there are lots and lots of galaxies. I, naively, not being a real astronomer, think of a galaxy, our galaxy being a bit like a fried egg, and you know, all the stars are in the, in, in the plane of the egg. Well, the supergalactic plane is the same, except instead of being stars, it's galaxies. And the red crosses are what are believed to be galaxies with black holes at the center. They're called active galactic nuclei. And statistically, you can establish that there are associations between these black circles and the active galactic nuclei. You can see here there's a cluster of active galactic nuclei, and there's two of our events nearby. Similarly here, there's three or four active galactic nuclei, two of our events nearby. Here there's lots of active galactic nuclei with only one event. The blue cross here is the nearest galaxy of this type, the Centaurus A, which is only about uh, 10 million light years away from us, and one that we can see rather easily, and uh, we're very excited about this. So we published this result in, in Science uh, in 2007. We must have, or just this is a nice way to see it. This is just taking the direction of each of the events and looking at the separation between the direction of the events and the closest active galactic nucleus within this distance. This distance was found by, by a scan. And you see the data are there, there's one event there which is about 8 degrees away from AGN, but the data are really quite clustered with a mean angle of about 4 or 5 degrees, whereas for an isotropic distribution of the sky, supposedly the cosmic rays were arriving uniformly from all directions, then you would expect something like this. And the points here are correspond to places where we have cosmic rays, but there isn't an active galactic nucleus, and this is within 12 degrees of the galactic plane. We are not card-carrying astronomers. We didn't realize that dust stops were seeing active galactic nuclei, and there was the fact that we don't see them is actually, in a sense, quite encouraging. Well, we convinced somebody enough for the Argentine Postal Service to give us a first-day stamp to mark the birth of cosmic rays. This passing gaucho was so impressed, he used his mobile phone to send the message back. But I want to finish with a slide that I really love, because it's appropriate since this is a history of science museum. I said that cosmic rays have been around forever, but it appears that back in Renaissance times, Carlo Crivelli actually knew not only about cosmic rays, but the source. Here you see a spiral galaxy. <laughs> Lots of cosmic rays coming out and perhaps a neutrino causing the virgin birth. Thank you very much. Thank you very much indeed, Alan. That's great. If anyone wants to slip away, because, because, because we lost a little bit of time at the start with the, with the uh, recorder, uh, do. But Alan uh, says he's willing to take uh, Few questions, I think, provided they're not in the Scottish Enlightenment, but, but in a lot of respects, he's. Well, no, I'm quite knowledgeable. <laughs> <laughs> that was all right. was Scottish Enlightenment. Um, in the photo, the area of the observatory looked quite deserted. Yes, and it is. Is that important? Um, it's really only important in that it's much easier to put the detectors out of places where there are people. I, I didn't have my usual picture of a detector of a cow, but there are actually 
something like six cows per square kilometer. And apart from some people who, who look after the cows and live in really quite amazing improved conditions on the Pampa, it is uninhabited. We had, uh, there was a possibility, you, know, you don't just run one of these things like have a park for 20 years without thinking how you make it bigger. And one possibility that I'd always been intrigued about was the idea of putting a block of plastic simply in every telephone box in the country. Then you've got cables connecting. And you're only dealing with one landowner. A big difficulty is dealing with landowners. Now I can tell you stories about how the parts, I've told you about stories here. But there was a similar suggestion to putting them in the in the rural valley in that software way. And there's actually quite a lot of educational work going on in the States, particularly in the Netherlands, where in schools there are small detector arrays being put in. But ideally you want to be in a place where there are no people. And then you have the job of trying to make sure that people understand why you are there and you're not causing the problems. In principle, the detectors are supposed to be so reliable that they will visit them as often as the Hubble Space Telescope is visited. But the difficulty is that if you've got 1,600 detectors, you can't afford to give them much money to the landowners. And this gives you no bargaining power. At Howard Park, I used to have a line in my, my granite, which was site improvements. And I used to do things like buy stones or agree to put in a cattle grid and try and improve the area for the farmers. And that was far more money and far more useful to them than the tens of pounds literally that we got from them. Sorry, that's a long answer, but I guess that's the sort of thing I'm supposed to tell you. Can I ask a layperson's question about the, I mean, the stories we've been hearing in, in the previous weeks, and, and the stories presumably that the, uh, uh, their astronomers are um, uh, telling to their potential funders, run along the lines of, if we can, if we can do this and we can detect, make these, uh, detect these things and so on, we'll be able to understand that thing out there more, more profoundly. So yeah. that there's a target, and the target creates a phenomenon here back on Earth, and if we can improve our detection in relation to that phenomenon, we learn more about that thing out there. So that's a very simple story, but that's essentially the structure of the narrative that you, that you tell. Your story, it sounds to me, was completely different. You have this phenomenon, you've no idea about the thing out there. Um, now, is that... Yeah, well, I, 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 I wasn't... I wanted to tell you all the story, because that was the kind of brief, but I did have to give it a little bit of background, so... But what I'm interested in is, is that a harder story to tell? Because because you, you haven't got this, this well, or is it is it more interesting? I don't it's know. The, the, there's always this sense of wonder. It's like mountaineers always talk about high peaks and studying the most energetic particles of nature, which is an example of of matter in its farthest departure from thermal equilibrium, is very challenging. And then if you can identify the sources, you still have the problem of the acceleration. I and mean, this didn't seem to be the right place to talk about. It's actually incredibly difficult to think up how you get a system to accelerate a particle with 10 to 20 electron volts. It, it really is very, very hard. And then the particles in a sense shouldn't be there. But if you can identify them, the sort of thing we'll be able to do will be understand the sources. We'll also be able to use them as tracers of the properties of the magnetic field in our galaxy, which is not terribly well known even now. Then, because the energies are so far beyond the LHC, and I have to say I cheated a little bit there, because the important energy is what you get when you collide the things together, 
and we're hitting stationary things, but there's still a factor of more than 30 up. Uh, you might be able to get implications of particle physics, or there might be new physics. I told you I met um, Bob Galvin, the, the son of the father of Motorola, and when Jim took me to meet him, it was partly because he knew that that particular tap was more or less dry, and we still got the GPS receivers later. So he asked him, why have you been putting money into this crazy project? And he took us to the window of his skyscraper, and he looked down, and said, see those cars there? Those are my employees. Maybe you guys will do something that, sorry, th th these guys are living on what Faraday did in the 19th century. Maybe you guys will do something similar. <laughs> we don't have quite that enlightenment, I'm afraid, in the UK. Uh, the problem is just, just the, the numbers. This, this rate, one per square kilometer per century, means that on a satellite, you just would never ever have a particle, not never ever, but a particle going through. And even if it did, you wouldn't be able to measure its energy. The atmosphere acts as a particle amplifier. Times one particle in something like 10 to the 11 of these energies, and therefore we can measure them. And also it spreads the particles out, so it gives us this vast area for one particle, 25 square kilometers of the typical footprint. Now you couldn't fly 25 square kilometers in a satellite, or putting 25 square kilometers on the moon would be no good because the, um, there's no atmosphere. There are actually very interesting measurements being made, but no results yet, looking at the edges of the moon because cosmic rays going through the moon will actually produce radio emission. And some of the telescopes, uh, big radio telescopes, are being used to look at the edges of the moon. But as you can imagine, it's difficult to get time on these facilities to do that, and too expensive to, to build a, a purpose, a, an instrument particularly for that. But uh, I mean, you're, you're, it's a question that comes up quite a lot, but the answer really are that you need huge detectors in space, and on the moon, you, you, there's no atmosphere. The last question before we close, yes? Please explain what you mean by relatively nearby. Uh, yes, it is. It is on an, well, it's really near an astronomical scale. The age of the universe is uh, several billion years, and that means you're talking about uh, gigaparsecs, 10 to the 9 parsecs. We're talking about uh, a scale just a tenth of that. So it is, in astronomical terms, it's very nearby. And if you think about how the number of sources goes as the cube of the distance, the number of possible objects within our volume is quite small. Well, thank you very much indeed, Alan, for, for ending us in such a splendid uh, fashion. Uh, we've had a great time in February, and um, it's uh, uh, very nice that we've, we've ended with uh, and, and exotic. I think mean, your story has been one of the most exotic stories we've had, so we're, we're very grateful. Thank you very much.